Hello, traders and friends. Welcome to the Are You Green podcast, the weekend edition. I'm Elisa Levinson, and today we're going to look into the dot-com bubble, also known as the internet bubble, the 90s bubble, etc. We're going to go over a few things. First, we're going to talk about what a stock market bubble looks like versus a market crash. This distinction is important because oftentimes a bubble occurs before a crash. So we're going to look at the five economic stages to this cycle and we'll look at them in conjunction with the timeline for these events, which happened from 1993 through 2000. Today we'll talk about the events that led up to this bubble, why the buyers continued to buy. And next time on part two, we'll go over the actual bubble burst and most importantly, what you can do as an individual investor to protect yourself against a future burst. But to understand the future of economics, you need to know the past. So that's why in this part one, we'll really look into, again, the events that led up to the burst, as well as economic indicators to pay attention to for the future. Okay, so simply put, a bubble is a rapid escalation of the market value. So this is not the actual value of the corporation. Keep in mind, this is what the stock is trading for on the stock market. And then of course, this bubble eventually bursts where it loses its value with those stocks. A stock market crash is the dramatic decline of stock market prices across the board, like multiple sectors. So usually a bubble just occurs over one sector, one product, etc. But a bubble can also be followed with a stock market crash. The dot-com bubble was actually eventually followed by a crash that happened on September 11th, 2001. Obviously, that also had external factors that came into play, and that's a topic for another episode. Let's start in 1993. Bill Clinton was president, and his policies to support low-income earners were slowly building up a very strong middle class, giving people confidence and money to spend. Mosaic also was developed in that time as a brand new software. This was crazy innovative because at that point, people did start to understand what computers could do, but they had nothing to actually connect to the World Wide Web. Mosaic was a web browser that allowed them to access the internet. It also allowed images to come up as well as just text. This technology gave way to other web browsers. Before that time, only 15% of households had computers, but by 1997, that had already shot up to 35%, again, with access to the internet, to the World Wide Web. Entrepreneurs started popping up all over the place around that time, again, around 93 to 97. Jeff Bezos founded Amazon in 1994, and we'll track that company since obviously it is a one that survived this bubble burst. In 1995, Microsoft went, came out with Windows 95, another big company that survived the burst. Windows 95 was so important because it was the first version to include a web browser called Internet Explorer. Before that, everyone was just using like Word and Excel, and that's not really exciting, at least to most people. 
1997, the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates by over 10% that year. And this is really the backbone of what started the next events. It's really important to take a step back On other episodes, I've talked about the economic policies and tools that the government has to control our economy. Interest rates are managed by the Federal Reserve and they can be very powerful and impactful even though they sound so boring and like they have no relation to our everyday lives even though they do. To explain this, I want to go back even further in history to the 1970s. In the mid-70s, there was an increase in consumption and demand. This increase of demand of supplies, it caused inflation because people could not keep up with this demand. So we saw this in 2020, right? When people started demanding toilet paper, there was less supply and people started selling toilet paper for like $100 during some of those terrible days. So with higher demand and lower supply, the prices go up higher and higher and higher. And this is called hyperinflation it really creates a whole mess of issues that affect everyone. It forces people to start consider hoarding supplies because they don't wanna pay more for something in a a few weeks. It also really puts the elderly population at risk since they're not actively working and earning money and their savings are losing value every day. Same is actually said with banks and their loans losing value. So basically the government wants to stop people from spending. They wanna encourage people people to save their money and not spend it. To do this, they raise the interest rates. So from 1977, the interest rate was 7.4% and it was raised by over 14% year after year until 1981 when it hit an all-time high of 15.8%. Basically for you, that means that the interest you'll make just by having a bank savings account is 15.8%, which is outrageous. Right now, for example, it's around 3% for a savings account. And of course that depends on which bank and et cetera. And the interest rates affect us in numerous different ways. The interest you would have for a new loan, for example, for a house, or if you wanted a new loan for a business, et cetera. And this is a double-sided coin because the Federal Reserve can very easily flip this. So let's talk about what was happening in 96. They actually wanted people to spend more money to not save. So instead, they made interest rates lower. So in 1997, the rate was steady at 6.4%, but it would be lowered by more than 10% in 1998 to 5.3%. This means lower interest on new loans and less incentive to keep cash in your bank account. You get more of a return in the stock market. This is what made the stock market even more attractive. Many believe that Alan Greenspan, who was in charge of the Fed at the time, had specifically worked to increase interest in the stock market. A part of this was thanks to a tax relief bill that gave a lower rate on capital gains, the money that you make from the stock market. These lower rates keyed up investors to move their money out of savings and to buy new shiny internet companies on the stock market. The low rates also made it easy for new businesses to get business loans and for more and more dot-com companies to be born each day. 
Now, we are officially at the first stage of the bubble. This is called displacement. It's a shift that gets all of the investors' attention. So anything like a new product, a new technology, or new lower interest rates. In this case, it was check, check, and check. Large investors started pouring money into young and new internet companies, dot-coms, hence the dot-com bubble. Some of these companies were Webvan, that's a grocery delivery service, Pets.com, and others. They started making really big promises to consumers like Siberian Outpost, spelled cyber, C-Y-B-E-R, offered free overnight shipping on electronics with absolutely no minimum order. Cosimo was a one-hour delivery from only local stores. It sounds like these are companies that are successful today. So what happened? And we'll go into that in a minute. These companies were just looking for a big payday like they saw Amazon receive. Amazon's IPO in 1997 or when Microsoft bought Hotmail for $400 million in 1997. And in 1998, a dot-com startup called theglobe.com, that IPO broke the record for the biggest gains in the first day of trading. It went up 606%. This brings us to our second stage in the bubble. It's called boom. This stage is when prices are starting to rise and investors feel an urgency to invest now or they will miss out. This is like the OG FOMO, right? (laughs) Meanwhile, these dot-com companies, they never even had a strong profitability plan. Remember some of the companies I talked about before? Similar ideas do exist today, but they do have a profitability plan. They have the audience and the infrastructure. So while Amazon was spending money on infrastructure, like they should have been doing, some of these companies were actually spending more money on advertising and having lavish launch parties or trying to expand their technology before the technology existed and basically just wasting away the funding that they were receiving. They felt like they could not lose as investors were encouraging them to spend the money to grow as big and as fast as possible to try to secure as much market share as possible for the future. And the prices kept on raising in the stock market, which brings us to the next stage, stage three, euphoria. This is where the investors continue to see the prices at high levels and skyrocketing, and there is no caution here. Caution is absolutely thrown into the wind, and this is the beginning of setting up a perfect storm. That concludes part one of the dot-com bubble special weekend episode. I really hope you've learned something new about our history. Next week, I'll release part two, which will really go into the disaster itself, the events happening in the world that contributed, as well as signs to look for in the future. Before next week, you should take a look at the IPOs that were released in 2020. Look up the company, understand, and see if they have already laid out a profitability plan. Look at the companies that are purely technology and have no plans for profit at all. And for the end of part two, we'll go over the IPOs and discuss what we can do to be safe investors for those 2020 IPOs and anything released in 2021. Thanks for listening. I look forward to speaking with you this week as we trade. 
Until then, plan your trades and trade your plan.